Recent analysis from the Congressional Budget Office found that, on average, enlisted personnel receive cash compensation that is higher than that received by about 90% of civilians of the same age and education. So what's the best way to capitalize on that? My next guest hopes to answer that very question. Trevor Nolan is the author of the new book, Military Money, How to Thrive on a Government Salary, and a retired service member himself. Well, the starting question really is uh, pretty easy for me. How do you thrive on a government salary? (laughs) It's a great question, and it's one that I would tell you has different answers depending on what career field you get and who your supervisors are as you are going through the military. You're only really going to be exposed and as smart financially as those that are surrounding you. And I had a very lucky and blessed path along that way where I had a lot of great mentors that really infused me with a lot of information. So how do you thrive on a government salary? You surround yourself with people and leaders and members, uh, cohort, whether that's uh, you know contemporaries of the same rank and grade, uh, or even folks that are junior to you that you see or that emulate positive financial decisions and that are just in a place where you want to be and you surround yourself with them and then you become part of their group. Let's start with the big one. Um, and it's a frustration that I hear from you know veterans that I know personally and uh, that I've spoken to through this job. And that is, you know, it's it's kind of hard to set down roots. You're all over the place and, you know, finding a, a good house for yourself where, you know, you're going to be there for the next, you know, even five years or so. That can be tough to build wealth when you don't exactly know where you're going to be in five years. Uh, what do you have as far as suggestions for those coming out of the military and looking for just a place to call? home? That's an absolutely great question. And this is what I get to in the book. Although it seems that that is a disadvantage as you are moving from installation to installation, as long as you choose to serve, I almost flip that and look at the inverse and look at the opportunity that you have to be exposed to different markets. And you're going to get paid every two weeks with a at least a cost of living adjustment of some sort on the first of every year and pretty well assured promotions on the enlisted side, at least up through, I would say, E5, E6, E7, and on the officer side, 04, 05. And what that means is you can accept a little bit greater risk than your civilian counterparts that are honestly, they're shopping from job to job. They don't know what their annual salary is going to be in 12 months because of the massive amount of turnover that we're seeing in the civilian job force and the civilian industry. So because you have the opportunity of assured income and increased income from year to year, you have some opportunities to grow and build wealth by accepting a little bit greater risk. Now, how are some specific ways that you can do that? To your point, Eric, there are some places where you can get stationed that are less than desirable. And when you're in that situation, some ways that you may want to look at growing some wealth would be to maybe grab an even nicer house than you would ever be able to afford for yourself and grab some roommates and celebrate it that way. Let's talk about the active duty folks. What is the best way to make sure that you're financially sound if and when you are deployed overseas? What do you have to make sure is solid back home? You know, I know there are a million variables that go into that, whether you have a family or not, but just some of the basics that you can give me. Absolutely. Great question. I was deployed six times, all of those to the Middle East, and then I did a number of overseas short and long tour assignments. So you're speaking right to my heart when you bring up this question. 
if you are single and you have no dependents, you should absolutely minimize or eliminate all liabilities that you are paying for back in the States. What do I mean by that? If you're going to be gone longer than about 90 days, you probably need to consider, even though it's a pain, putting your stuff in storage and pocketing all your housing allowance. That's how I was able to pay off my student loan, for example, or move a renter in behind. If you have the note in your name, you know, you're a, a homeowner getting renters in there that offset your liabilities back in the States. Same thing with vehicles. You know, I served, you know, I'm in the 9-11 generation, right? I started just a few months before 9-11 and I was at war the entire time I was on active duty. So with that, there are some things that really kind of bubble to the surface as opportunities. One other group I, I wanted to address is, you know, the folks that are getting ready to, you know, they've served their time, they're on their way out of the military. What's the best way to shore up that you've got a solid financial footing once you exit the military and are looking to retire, whether you're going to go into another opportunity or take it easy a little bit? Aha. Uh -huh. About two years out, and I'm not joking when I say that, two years out from the time that you want to separate or retire from active duty, you need to take a look at all of the benefits. And remember, you're going to transition from the Department of Defense to the Department of Veterans Affairs. So with that, there are a lot of benefits. One of those is education. A lot of people, and in my book, uh, I even wrote, don't give your GI Bill to your kids. But I have since backed away from that. You know, I have gone back to school because I didn't give my GI Bill to any, any dependents. And it provides you a tax-free housing allowance, right? And that can really take the, a lot of pressure off of you know the liability column as you go to retire. But let's back up. So two years ahead of time, you want to make sure that your monthly liabilities can be a hundred percent met by at minimum you know your retirement pay, what you're expecting out of your retirement. That puts you in the absolute best situation, meaning you can celebrate actual freedom. You don't have to go and get a paycheck in two weeks because you know that your bills, whether that is mortgage, childcare, uh, gas, utilities, whatever that is, is covered at minimum uh, by your retirement check um, or in the case of separating by the assets that you've accumulated while you're on active duty. That puts you in the absolute best because then you can really go chase your life's fulfillment dream, whatever that is. You know, and you can do it. And I, I wrote some silly ones in the book, but I mean, if you want to be a very underpaid coach of your children's soccer team, well, you can go do that because all of your basic necessities are taken care of. And it takes about two years to put those things in order. So I would say that that's probably the best thing is minimize your liabilities to the point where whatever your asset category is, whether that is your retirement pay, VA disability, or GI bill housing allowance, that all your bills are covered from those totals so that you can go do whatever you want. Because ultimately the most wealth that you're going to carry into civilian hood after the military is your health and your freedom. And if, and if you can uh, make sure that the money doesn't become a problem, then you can really transcend it and become whatever you're called to be on this side of the uniform. That's really great. All right. And, and final question, and it's probably a topic that you don't address in the book, but I just have to ask it just because based on the news on the day, um, with all the shutdown talk and things of that nature, you know, troops pay is usually used as a political football to try and guilt the party that they feel like is holding out to, you know, make sure that there's funding for our troops, you know, serving overseas and here. I just would like to get your two cents on what that would mean financially for somebody going through a potential shutdown that maybe troops aren't getting paid when they think they are. 
So it's a great question. And I w- went through the shutdown in 2014 and there was a lot of pay delay. And I will tell you that it also takes a lot beyond the military service member to run the military. So I'm really talking about those Department of Defense, Department of Air Force, Navy, Army, whatever civilians, and they won't come to work, right? And and it takes a ton of them to make the big machine work. So we're not just talking about the effects of, I mean, it's catastrophic. I mean, when I was on active duty, I would do some of these war games overseas and I would be constantly worried when I see that like some non-kinetic targets of potential adversaries would be like DFAS, for example. And I know I'm using a lot of uh, acronyms, but so the military pay system, as you can imagine, would be a very high payoff target if you were an adversary of the United States. If you could eliminate the military's ability to get paid, especially for our junior enlisted folks, they're a paycheck away in some cases from not eating. So I do a lot of work in my nonprofit life, specifically to food in uh, food insecurity and trying to eliminate food insecurity for active duty military here in the Colorado Springs region. This is near and dear to my heart. I know how many folks are on food subsistence and how many folks don't make a basic living wage when they have a couple of small kids in their young 20s. So this hits right right at home for me. It is a terrible situation to use military pay as leverage. And I was just in Washington, D.C. last week working with members of the Colorado delegation, and they all are in, you know, depending, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle they're on, they're all in 100% agreement that we should never, we should never, and we should never use military pay as a political bargaining chip. We do so much more damage than good when we shut down our, our federal government. You know, one of the best things about the Department of Defense is that we have civilian leadership, elected leadership that that serves in those roles of, you know, commander in chief, secretary of defense. But when they aren't given the opportunity or the opportunity is being taken away by a very small group to do their job that they have been elected to do when it comes to defending our nation, it's just wrong, man. I mean, it, it, it hurts my heart. And there are there's a chapter on all of the resources that are available you, if you're a uniformed military member, you will never, you should never, and you will never go without pay. You just have to reach out. And there are a ton of aid organizations and nonprofits that will get put money in your hand same day. Many of those in the form of a grant, some in the form of very low or no interest loans, so that you don't ever get put in a terrible situation by our nation that relies on you. Trevor Nolan is the author of the new book, Military Money, How to Thrive on a Government Salary. You can find this interview along with a link to get a free copy of the book at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven 
aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
What do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.